he had one of those like um, sort of inspirational moments in a meeting. And he was like, this is one of the most iconic surf spots on the globe. It's three miles from our office. And if we're not going to stand up and fight against this project, we should just quit our jobs, lock the door and leave. From WSL Pure, this is One Ocean. Hey everyone, Reese here, coming to you from a safe distance. I sincerely hope that you and yours are safe and healthy amidst this global pandemic. I have to admit, it's pretty wild. Um, the numbers, at least here in the US, aren't getting much better, and many of us are a few weeks into self-quarantine already. And you know, the trails and the beaches are closed, and it looks like we've got another month of this ahead of us. That said, we are really fortunate. Currently, our team is all healthy and we're still able to continue our work, bringing you a fresh episode this week with some dear friends who happen to be experts on the long-standing campaign to save trestles. And whether you've scored great waves at lowers or you've never even heard of the spot, there's a lot to learn in this episode. In particular, the incredible courage of the grassroots organizations who took on this campaign in the face of big money, big government, and what looked like an unwinnable fight. Thanks to Surfrider Foundation's CEO, Dr. Chad Nelson, and their Coastal Preservation Manager, Stephanie Sikich-Quinn, for joining us this week. We caught up over Zoom, and uh, it was a really fun conversation. We learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Without further ado, here's Chad and Stephanie. Chad, Stephanie, uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, quickly, for those who don't know you, uh, let's introduce yourselves. Uh, Stephanie, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Stephanie Sikich-Quinn, and I am the Coastal Preservation Manager for the headquarters of Surfrider. Awesome. And Chad? And my name is Chad Nelson, and I'm the CEO of the Surfrider Foundation. And normally we would all be in person hanging out, hopefully pre or post surf with big hugs and whatnot. But um, <laughs> in light of all that's going on in the world and global pandemics, we're uh, doing this via Zoom, as many other people are. So it's nice to at least be able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's our new world, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, as I mentioned before we started, we are sharing some trestles content uh, this week at the WSL. And as soon as I heard that we were going to be sharing some trestles content and kind of rewinding back to those events, I thought, who knows the story of trestles better than anyone else but my friends over at Surfrider. And I thought maybe you guys could share why this place is so special um, and what's been going on there for a long, long, long time, which, you know, I think many of us in the surf industry or surf space will be familiar with, but I'd love to get into the backstory and all the work that you've done. But first, maybe let's define um, and introduce Surfrider to anyone who isn't familiar with Surfrider Foundation. Sure, I, I can take that one. And then maybe, Steph, you can talk about why Trussells is such an amazing place. Uh, the Surfrider Foundation is a grassroots coastal conservation organization. We've been around for 35 years. We're in almost 200. Uh, we have almost 200 chapters and clubs around the U.S. and in almost every country. Uh, we have affiliates in Europe, Australia, Japan, and Argentina. And we really focus on clean water and healthy beaches. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's so many reasons why Trestles is important. Um, it is housed in San Onofre State Beach, which is the fifth most visited state park in California. Um, and it's home to 12 threatened endangered species. Obviously, it's one of the best surf breaks in the world, arguably, to some people. 
Um, it houses campsites that people, you know, can really tuck themselves away from local communities. And then there's a lot of um, cultural resources that are connected to the Native Americans that have lived there for millennia. So it houses everything from small critters to recreationalists to really important sacred sites. You know, and I, I would add, it's one of the uh, last sort of like healthy, intact watersheds in, in Southern California. So, you know, it's one of the only places where you can actually surf after a rain in Southern California and the water will be clean. Oh, and is that why it's been so crowded during the COVID-19 <laughs> shutdowns? No one's afraid to go to Trestles? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I think, amazingly enough, it was one of the last places to close. And in fact, they closed the parking lots yesterday, which is certainly, um, see, you've seen this sort of visitorship decline a little bit, but it hasn't been great social distancing out there. <laughs> well, finally, L.A. County uh, just closed the beaches here, uh, closed the beaches, not just the lots, but the actual beaches. So um, it's just kind of our new reality that we're all dealing with. But, you know, I can understand and, and relate with why Trestles is so special. I mean, Chad, when I first moved out here from the East Coast, it's one of the first things I got to do is come down and spend a day with you. And um, yeah. you took me to Upper Trestles to surf. And, you know, even on a kind of modest surf day, that wave was still so fun and so special. And just the walk down there, it's just a really incredible detachment from the rest of Orange County, which can be, you know, pretty commercialized. There's a, there's a lot going on and it's just this kind of little oasis. Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, you do feel like you're, um, you've left sort of the urban like madness. Um, it's beautiful. There's, you know, still a river mouth there. And, and then there's these complex of surf spots. You've got cottons, uppers, lowers, middles, church, all the way down to San Onofre. So it's a, it's pretty rich with, uh, pretty amazing surf spots. And, probably the most heavily used like mile of coast for surfers in in the state of california yeah so understandably really important in addition to all the you know to surfers but in addition to all the the, the reasons you highlighted so um for for those who don't know the backstory take us back start us on this journey of the campaign to save trestles where, where does it all begin and 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 where are we now and i'm going to jump in with questions but i mean this is almost as much for me to learn as it is to educate some of our friends around the world hey hey steph why don't you start with the basics and i'll kind of tell a little bit about surf rider how we jumped into it Sure. Sounds good. Well, uh, a lot of us like to joke at Surfrider that this started um, back when we were adolescents, um, like 15 years ago, you know, after like our 16th birthday. So for me, I've been working on it really, honestly, my entire adult life. Um, so yeah, essentially uh, an agency called the Toll Road Corridor Agency. Um, actually, it's the Transportation Corridor Agency. Excuse me. I've been saying it for so long. Um, proposed to build a six-lane 16-mile toll road that would have bisected San Onofre State Beach. It literally would have gone straight through the middle of the park. Uh, they proposed this over, honestly, 20 years ago at this point. There was different iterations of it. There was different levels of activism that came to fruition because of this devastating plan. But as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, it sent the ivory around the world. Um, once people realized this park was going to be in danger, we almost couldn't keep up with the activism. 
and Chad can kind of jump in and I can kind of finish up with how many people got involved. But um, at the time, obviously, uh, the world uh, tour was taking place at Trestles. And so it always had eyes on it all of the time. And that was really a great benefit that we had from the surfing community. But it wasn't just the surfing community and the locals. As I said, people from around the world came to defend the surf break. We had tens of thousands of letters that were sent to all of the decision makers that had their fingers in this pie. Um, we were able to beat back the road over the course of 15 years through the regulatory process and through the legal process. Um, we've had more successful dates in court than I think most dating shows have ever had um, in their <laughs> lifetime. We've had more successful hearings where we broke records for um, the crazy amount of people showing up to kind of activate and participate in their civic duty. So I'll kind of kick it over to Chad to just give you this kind of breadth of it. Um, and obviously the impacts would have been devastating because not just for an environmental, but cultural and recreational components of it. Yeah, I think that's right, Steph. And it's funny now looking back since we since we won um, that, that all that was able to happen. But in the early days, you know, this road was on the map already. Um, Governor Schwarzenegger at the time supported wait, wait, wait. it. You said it was on the there map. There were serious already? conversations. Like people, it was they, literally like, like, they like they it was like a dot. It was like a dotted line on the map. Like this is coming. Like if you bought this oh, is wow. you know in the old days when we had paper maps. Um, and <laughs> listen, uh, kids, back in the day, that's how three long. of us used to drive around with paper maps in our <laughs> we cars. Had cartographers. Uh, that's, that's how long we've been fighting this thing. But um, you know, so it's on the map, and there were serious discussions inside Surfrider's office that this was an unwinnable campaign and um, it was, you know, not worth fighting because it was a losing cause. And uh, to the credit take, of... Take me to those moments. Like what what got you over the hump of saying, let's go for this? Because as a nonprofit, you have to be really selective with where you put your resources and what fights you fight. Um, and I think that, you know, strategy is really important. And so, you know, what, what got you over that hump? What made you say, you know what, is it, this one is too important or we think there's a chance or we want to fight it no matter what, because maybe we can at least steer them in the right direction and get some concessions. What was driving that decision-making? No, I think that's a good question. I mean, you know, this is a, oh, oh I don't know the exact number Steph could tell you, but you know, hundreds of millions of dollars project, uh, you know, part of a larger network. So there was a lot of things working against us. Um, and, you know, the the turning point, really, the credit goes to a guy named Matt McLean, former um, marketing director at Surfrider. You know, we, he, he had one of those like um, sort of inspirational moments in a meeting and he was like, hey, we're the Surfrider Foundation. This is one of the most iconic surf spots on the globe. It's three miles from our office. And if we're not going to stand up and fight against this project, we should just quit our jobs, lock the door and leave. I mean, and you know, it was, it, I, and I think he was right. He was like, we at least wow. should go down fighting. And I, I think everybody looked at him and said, you, you, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, but it, I it got just chills feet. just listening to you <laughs> recount that moment, man. It, it was really good. And, you know, and he was right about that. And it really was a turning point. And so from that point on, we're like, all right, you know, we're going to, we're going to fight this thing. We had other nonprofit coalition members that were hugely important to us also questioning it. And I think when, when we sort of jumped in and had that resolve, um, it, 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 you know, it was the beginning of turning the corner and building momentum. Yeah. Was Surfrider the first group to jump in? 
Kind of. I mean, just to, there were the California. It's hard state to parks. ever say who's first, but I mean, you know, sometimes yeah. there's kind of a, a leading organization of a coalition. So I'm curious, who Honestly, are those first groups, or who are you working was, with? It was really the California State Parks Foundation. They t- to this day still get the the kind of queen um, crown to wear for carrying the torch. They kept us together as a coalition. As Chad said, once we coalesce together as a coalition with 12 nonprofits um, at the national level and then very local level, we had a lot of impetus behind us. But to to Chad's point, we legitimately thought we were going to lose even up to the Coastal Commission hearing. But here's the catch. We had spent years and over a million dollars just us scraping together funds, trying to cobble together everything we could, working. Honestly, I worked 70 hours a week sometimes. Um, But then we got to the Coastal Commission hearing and and roughly 4,000 people showed up. And that scared the bejesus out of the Coastal Commissioners. Um, We had counted all of their votes going into this I want to make sure people hear that. This is is always what happens when we get together. So this is the same thing when we did the panel at the U.S. Open. You just roll out some heavy stat. And I'm like, hang on. Let's all pause and take that number. 4,000 people. 4,000 people show up to a committee hearing. And like... You can even roll over that. What time of day was it? What day of the week was it? Because these hearings are usually a pain in the ass to get to. You've got a job, you've got kids, you've got whatever else going on to get people to come out and show up and say, I'm here because I care this much about it that I'm going to interrupt my entire day. 4,000 people. That's incredible. Yes, Reese. And actually, when you say it like that, kind of make me want to tear up again and give me the (laughs) chills because, again, we did not expect to have that many people. Um, I kind of started getting this inkling that we were going to have over a thousand people in my head when I woke up. I was like, we're totally going to get a thousand people. So we called the Coastal Commission and said, we're kind of nervous that a lot of people are going to come to this. We need a bigger venue. So they switched it to actually a Wednesday. So we called it Big Wednesday, of course. Um, And it was it was supposed to be a few hours. Uh, Chad, what was it? Twelve hours we were there? I think even longer because I think they made the decision at 11 at night. So, yeah, yeah, at least 12 hours. Yeah. 4,000 people there for 12 hours. 4,000 people there for 12 hours. And like I said, and I'll I'll hand it back to you guys, but we counted all of the the votes with the commission. And we had spent months um, meeting with the commissioners one-on-one and pretty much had calculated that we were going to lose for kind of maybe like an 8 to 10 to 12 vote to give you an idea. So there's 12 commissioners. And we thought we kind of really only had three or four solid votes. And then, like I said... When you have decision makers that see thousands of people before them, it scares the bejesus out of them. It goes, I have to do the right thing because I have thousands of people who are hanging on my every word. And this action will be memorialized forever if we take the wrong decision. And so what that tells me is it's the importance of getting people to show up and use their voice. I mean, it's really about like you do have power when you show up in numbers and people have to stand face to face with with their constituents. It is the like best example maybe that we've ever had. I mean, um, I, it's funny. I also like I call it the like Woodstock of surfing conservation. Um, there were people there in costumes. We had kids. There were posters, surfboards, bands playing. Um, the surf industry rallied like nothing I've ever seen, and they showed up with their buses and I don't think sprinter vans were around yet, but the equivalent. And um, it was almost celebratory in the sense that like the surfing community really came together. So there was a lot of high fives and people seeing each other. Um, you know, there, there were people from the Bay Area that that drove down, people from 
Australia, Japan, different countries came, um, not just for the hearing, but once they found out it was happening, they came. So, um, so that part of it, and it, it just shows it is, it is the quintessential example of the power, the power of people. And, you know, and, you know, it, it works over and over again, as this campaign showed and others have when, when you get those numbers, I mean, you know, quick aside, this is what happened in, uh, I think, you know, you a lot of credit to the fight the bite folks in Australia, which I know you've talked about again, that was just a people powered movement. It's so cool to see. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that was really what it was, what it was about. And, and this campaign also went on for years. Yeah. I mean, this was a multiple years battle. And I think one of the impressive things is, okay, so you got 4,000 people to show up to this hearing, but you had to have had other hearings. You had to have had other, you know, times when you need people to show up. And so there's, there's strength in numbers, but then there's also endurance. And I think that's a big part of all of this. And so how do you keep people engaged and up to speed? So what are some of the strategies and tactics there that you use to keep everyone together and keep everyone marching? Because I think, you know, in my experience, and I go back to the Surfrider chapter in New York City, we've fought pipelines there off of, off of New York City. And, you know, they may lose one and then everyone goes on and goes back to fighting plastic pollution or whatever it is. And then another pop pipeline thing pops up again, you know, because the industry is like, oh, we'll just wait them out and they'll forget and they'll get busy or there'll be a global pandemic and they'll get busy and then <laughs> we'll try and slide it through, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, even just today, the EPA is rolling back regulations while we're all kind of focused on other stuff. And so, you know, how do you keep people going and keep, keep that momentum up and keep everyone going? It's, it's an endurance question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, go ahead, Steph, and I'll jump in. I yeah. Well, I just wanted to make a, a super quick point is um, we did the original organizing Twitter and Facebook and Insta weren't even really around. So to what directly, year was that? So we kind of started the heavy organizing around 2005 to 2008. So 2008 is when Twitter so my started. MySpace. Yeah. Yes. We actually launched, I believe, Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe our Twitter account for the hearing. Yeah. So it was kind of the same kind of time frame. So to your point about how did we do this through endurance, um, after we won those big wins, of, of course, the toll road developers wanted to build it in segments. So we had another five years of fighting it. And fortunately, we had the help of social media. At that time, we really needed to rely on it to kind of keep it going. So we had lots of PSAs and videos. And again, the surf industry was super helpful. There's a lot of little videos and things that were made that were put out there to kind of keep the intrigue and beat going. But I mean, it really, it really came down to um, our chapters continually being involved and our coalition, hands down, the Safe San Onofre Coalition. To this day, we still meet on a weekly basis. And the fight's not over because there are probably some, you know, other agencies in um, Orange County that would like to see like an arterial road or just like a small road go through the park. Um, we have protections that ban the actual toll road. And so we're continuing to work on legislation right now that would ban any road. Even if some like you, Reese, wanted to take a shovel and start making <laughs> a tiny road, this legislation would be like, no, you can't. So we're still having that I endurance. I have been thinking about that. 
I mean, because you need to somewhere. get out. The COVID's getting you crazy. Um, well, um, <laughs> you know, and one of the things I would add to that is, you know, Peter Douglas, who is one of the like, uh, you know, the late great Peter Douglas, one of the legends and architects of the California Coastal Commission, arguably the most protective piece of coastal legislation in the world. You know, he famously said the coast is never saved. It's always being saved. Um, and to Steph's point, you know, uh, and I, this was a learning for me. You know, I thought a state park was sacrosanct, right? You make a state park or a national park or a local park and it's a park, right? It's there forever. And this was for me, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this eye-opening thing. What, they're going to put a road through a state park? And, you know, as we urbanize, the open spaces become the last place to build things. And so we're going to be protecting our parks and our coastal parks and um, forever, you know, if we, it, local stewardship is the only way those things are going to remain. For sure. And so with that local stewardship uh, and uh, Stephanie, you mentioned this, you have the, the coalition who, who, what other orgs are a part of that coalition? Um, I imagine it's maybe some of your other chapters or lo- usual suspects in the surf world, but who else is a part of that? Yeah. So it's, I like to um, say we're like a circus. We have the big tent <laughs> and we have the big, big 10 organizations that are involved, right? So we have Sierra Club and the Natural Resource Defense Council, the Audubon Society. Um, those are like the big 10 and even surf riders considered under the big 10, although, you know, we're not as large as them because we have national presence. And then yep. we have kind of the statewide focus group. So it'd be like California Trout Unlimited, right? And then you get down all the way to this, is my favorite example, it's called the Laguna Blue Belt Coalition. So it's just a bunch of women, honestly, in Laguna that have been protecting green space and coastal areas, and they joined in. But um, and then, of course, Wild Coast, which you know is a big um, environmental yep. surf NGO as well. But some people would kind of come in and out, and there was always about five of us that kind of kept the drum beat going. And like I said, virtually meet all of the time um, and keep it going because, like Chad said, we will have to forever protect this park. Yeah, I would like. Oh, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, I think two of the things that were really made this campaign super successful. Steph mentioned one of them, um, the California State Parks Foundation, which, by the way, is this amazing organization. It's a nonprofit that supports California State Parks, which we all love. I didn't even know they existed before this campaign. They're an amazing organization. And this woman, Elizabeth Goldstein, she was the conductor of the campaign and ran this thing and just did a brilliant job. So having that strong leader in a coalition is fundamental to the success of a coalition. And the other thing was all those groups Steph mentioned, everybody kind of picked a lane. So the Endangered Habitats League focused on endangered species and habitat. The Sierra Club really focused on like general park visitors. Uh, Surfrider obviously focused on surfing in the surf community NRDC really focused on the like legal land use issues and the lawsuits. And so each group kind of had a very specific uh, role and that the park has something for everyone. The Native um, uh, American tribes talked about those important cultural resources and brought their community. So we kind of had, you know, Wild Coast brought in sort of the uh, Latino community. So we had like every group representing sort of their sector and coming together. And I think that was part of the power. Yeah. So you have this broad coalition, yet everyone has their sort of special interest in lane within that, which it sounds like is a winning strategy, right? Because I could see a world in which, and I've seen this in other, you know, examples on the East coast, uh, where I'm from, where, 
um, you know, Cape wind is always brought up, right. A w- offshore wind energy farm and, uh, yeah. the different groups that aligned in different ways to, you know, um, knock that project back. So, um, I could see a world in which somebody said like, Oh, what a bunch of surfers want to protect their wave or something, you know, that's a, a, a first world special interest, whatever, but it was actually, there's so much more there and you brought in all those different voices. So I think that's super important. Was that also really challenging? Well, I mean, I, I imagine there must've been some places where you guys were kind of going, hang on a second. No, we need to fight this way or that way. And how do you, how did you manage that? Was it all underneath the leadership of, um, uh, Elizabeth? Yeah. There honestly don't laugh at me, Reese, you know me well enough where, you know, I could be a little cliche. Honestly, it was very smooth sailing. Um, I think it got a little more complicated when we had to kind of get all of our lawsuits together, but the actual agreeing on strategy, because lawsuits are super complicated and they're expensive and they're time consuming. So outside of those really technical fields where you're kind of debating these really kind of large things, honest to God, and knock on wood, I hope I continue to have coalitions like this in the future because I swear it was very, very seamless for the most part. And I think it's because what Chad said, we stayed in our lanes. We respect each other's lanes. And then we had that conductor who made us all sing in unison when we needed to. But I've been doing this work for 25 years and I've never participated in a coalition like this. And I honestly don't know if I ever will again because it was like this magic in a bottle that came together. I also think it was the time of the year. 2008 was a very different phase for people. The world was kind of changing at that time. We had, you know, our elections were inspiring. We had just had Obama, like, you know, things were kind of changing. Um, so I think that also that magic sauce was kind of trapped in our, in our bottle. So it was a great coalition. I like it. Um, to go back to, you know, you, you've both touched on this a little bit, you know, this campaign took a long time. It took a lot of time. Stephanie, you're working on it for 20, 20 years or whatever. Um, that takes money that takes funding and you're a nonprofit organization and you know, it's uh, Chad was that an enabler for you in, in, well, I guess you weren't CEO then, but putting your CEO hat on, mm-hmm. um, and being in that position or just being a part of the organization thinking about fundraising, was it like, Hey, we've got this campaign. We need to continue to fundraise for it. Or were, I could also imagine a world in which donors are saying like, are you still fighting this thing? Or like, why are you guys, you know, are you not going to win it? This seems like a, you shouldn't be spending your dollars there. And also just for the people who don't understand, like those dollars pay salaries so people can go show up to these meetings and these hearings and be a part of, of fighting this thing. And so I guess I kind of want to get into the, the funding side of it. Not that you need to share numbers, but sure. thinking, thinking about that with your sort of, you know, cause I think your average person is like, I make a donation to Surfrider and maybe doesn't think about where those dollars go or right. how they get spent. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting that over, you know, the 15 years or more that we had staff working on this thing. I mean, there were dozens of people putting in thousands of hours and, you know, um, we definitely invested millions of dollars over that time to win this campaign, which is frankly what it takes, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we were fighting, uh, organization that had hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, you know, their ad budget was bigger than our campaign budget by a long shot, maybe 10 X. I was going to say tenfold. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there were a couple of key foundations, um, that had, you know, that jumped into this thing and rallied a few others. 
a previous section of this toll road had bisected uh, some amazing habitat right behind my house in Laguna Beach, the 73, it's part of their network. And that was a loss for the environmental community. And um, so that was, I think, motivating some of the organizations and the funders. But those funders uh, were essential. Not only did they sort of seed the campaign, they brought other funders in. You know, it's one thing for me to ask for money. It's another thing for the funders to reach out to their peers. And, uh, and to their credit, we're still receiving funding today to sort of as, you know, try to mop this thing up uh, and, and actually f- kill it uh, and finalize it. And so those uh, those handful of, you know, family private family foundations that cared about this part of the world and surfing and habitats and state parks were, were what made this happen. And it does take real money. You know, and frankly, at the end of the day, you know, when we, we settled some of the lawsuits, we were, you know, we went back and like tallied all of our hours and, and received some money as sort of mitigation or settlement, most of that went to the lawyers that fought this campaign for the last 15 years. And at the end of the day, you know, great win, great for morale, great for surfing. I don't think it was really, uh, and a great for our reputation as an organization, but it wasn't a money winner. I mean, I think- We lost you, money, theoretically. Yeah, yeah, we did, you know, and, and that's money well spent. Right, but, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, but it's not like we, you know, came out of this thing flush, uh, so, but yeah, you are a nonprofit. So, you know, <laughs> we did yeah. lose a little no, money. No, no, I say that because there's always <laughs> these accusations. Oh, you're just fighting this campaign because it's going to be, yeah. you know, it's like the, the world thinks the climate scientists or skeptics think this climate scientists are talking about climate change <laughs> to make money, which, you know, they've never visited a climate scientist's home before, but, right. uh, but right. yeah, so, you know, it took us real money. There were foundations that supported it that were very loyal. You mentioned kind of mopping it up. So so where is it today? Where do we stand today? And, and you know, what do we have to look forward to? Because I'm, I'm thinking about this as a place that, you know, is so important. We get fans every day who tell the WSL that we should put it back on the tour schedule. You um, should. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my call. We're going to have to call it Pat. <laughs> We're going to lobby. We're going to have to call Apache and G and all those guys. And, and I'll, I'll tell Elo and you know, he'll be like, yeah, get in line. Um, we've got enough to worry about right now. COVID-19 sure. Affecting the tour. So, um, but you know, people love that wave and a lot of our pros love that wave, you know, and they live down there so they can surf that wave. And so, um, it is important. So where do we stand today and what, what do we have to look forward to and, and what can people do if they want to, you know, continue to help protect it? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And we all need a little silver lining right now in the love and uh, time that we're in right now. So the good news is that, like I said, we've been fighting it for 15 years. We've won every court case that we can have. We've won every regulatory turn we can have. And now we're at the stage where we're working on state legislation. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be launching an action alert that will go to Californians only that are essentially asking their state representatives to codify the protections that we have received in court. So it's a really simple way to kind of say that we won all these cases and now let's codify it in state law. So as I was joking before, it would literally ban anyone 
or any agency from wanting to build a toll road through, or excuse me, a road through the park. You can tell I said it for 15 years. So right now our protections ban <laughs> a toll road from the park. That's codified in law through um, our court cases. And now we just want to kind of put the bow on it and, and send it through the legislature, have Governor Newsom sign it so that we can once and for all say that this park is protected literally from the legislature, the courts, and through regulatory measures. Mop it up. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's also a, 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 this is, you know, these kind of complex cases do take this much time, you know, and so, you know, it was, you know, some people showed up for three days at the hearing and thank them for that. But, you know, there was, as you've said, decades before that and a decade after that. And that's just a, also a good reminder that these these campaigns are never sort of easy or one and done. Yeah, for sure. And so um, what can people do to, uh, you know, learn more or be a part of, um, you know, this movement? Right. So right now we have, uh, if you go to savetrestles.org, this is like a, a trusty old website that has been clunking along. <laughs> oh my gosh, Chad, how many times have we written blogs for this website <laughs> over the past 15 years? So you can go back and get some historical reading done in your boring times. Um, but again, we're going to be launching an action alert in the next couple weeks. Things got a little bit slowed down because of coronavirus. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you live in California, head over to savetrestles.org, sign that action alert that will go to your state representatives. Uh, once it passes the legislature, we're really going to need an uptick of people to pressure the governor to actually sign it into law. And once we have it signed into law, then we're going to throw another huge party and we're all going to go surfing. And then we're going to really say that we did this as a community because, again, I mean, it's cliche, but we did this as a community and we're going to have to keep protecting this. So there is silver lining. Look for legislation. And honestly, thanks for all of your support, because I know people who are watching this have they still keep in touch with me from um, the surf world. It's amazing. In fact, I have uh, one kid that was 18. Uh, he's now 18, uh, reached out to me recently and is going to be writing a paper for it in college. And he came to the first hearing when he was eight. So it's, you know, it's a <laughs> generational so cool. thing. <laughs> I love that. I love those stories. I love hearing that from different nonprofits who have, you know, started on a campaign. And then 10 years later, that, that, that kid comes back and is a part of that campaign. Or I was talking to Kukua Hawaii recently. They're talking about how they now have kids who are coming back and, uh, you know, volunteering or interning with them. And, um, you know, Natalie McKinney over there, she's like, that, that's what we got to do. Get, get, get the youth engaged and then get them to come back and run for city council and, <laughs> you know, be a part totally. of the the, the movement. Um, anything else you, you two want to share about this? I, I really appreciate you taking some time to give us the backstory, but anything else you want to touch on? No, I mean, I just would, I would add that, like, I think the Trussell story is the story of every single surf spot in the world. If there's not a, a, a community that cares about the place that's willing to get active and protect it, you know, they're all going to be threatened at some point or another for some reason. And so, you know, all the more reason to get involved with Surfrider if it's here or a local conservation group in your community, wherever it is across the globe. Awesome. Well said. Well, thank you both, Chad. Thanks so much. Um, it's good to see your face and Stephanie, good to see you. Um, I look forward to sometime soon when we can get together and surf and hug and high five and all sorts of that. Um, but for now, I'll just kind of zoom goodbye. <laughs> thank you, Reese. Goodbye. Thanks, Reese. Thanks, Stephanie and Chad, for a really fun chat. And more importantly, for all the work that you and your team and the incredible coalition of partners have done to save trestles. The line that really stuck with me this week is Chad's quote of Peter Douglas. The coast is never saved. It's always being saved. 
That seems truer now more than ever. If you like this episode, share it with a friend, throw us a rating, five stars, please, or write a review. It really helps the podcast grow and find new listeners. And since everyone's quarantined, I know you're not driving on your commute right now, so you have no excuses not to uh, throw a review. I'm kidding, sort of. If you want to see what trestles looks like when the waves are pumping and the world's best are on it, be sure to check out WSL Rewind and the WSL Vault this week at worldsurfleague.com. And that's all I got. Until next time, stay safe, wash your hands, keep social distance, and um, we'll talk soon.